KYW Original Podcasts. It's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One. Over the years, the number of people that have come into my life, you know, and the relationships that I have, like, there's nothing like it. You know, I'm not really good at uh, remembering details of games once they're over, but I'm really good at remembering the people. And so I think that's what's been the, the coolest part. The coolest part for any coach would tell you that. And our guest this week, Haverford College women's basketball coach Bobby Morgan. The 2019-2020 season will be her 12th season with the Fords and her 33rd season overall coaching basketball. Coach, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. So what is the offseason like for you uh, as a Division Three women's coach? A lot, tons of recruiting. How often are you out on the road? Yeah, I think as a national school, um, our recruiting is, is worse than Division One, right? Because we don't have a calendar, so I pretty much am out every every day, June and July, um, all over the country. Chicago, Louisville, D.C., Atlanta, every Ivy League camp. You know, it's fun. We get to go to cool places. So let's talk about your story. Has basketball always been a big part of your life growing up as a, as a youngster? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I always say I'm a child of the Big Five. I uh, spent my, my grade school days at the Palestra with my mom and dad. Uh, half of our team, and my home team, my, my family rooted for Villanova, the other half for St. Joe's. Very hard lines divided there, not speaking <laughs> in the car. Um, but it's all I've ever known. Uh, my oldest brother was the manager at St. Joe's. Okay. Jack McKinney was there, so I was five years old, and he would let me come to practice. And I would watch practice. Now, most five-year-olds, that's not normal, but I watched. I liked it. And I don't, it was just kind of like the path that led me to, to basketball. I never thought I'd coach. I played. and uh, But I took an ad in the Mainline Times after I graduated that they needed coaches in the Narberth Summer League, that they were starting for girls. And I, uh, I answered the ad. I started to coach. And I was like, this is really fun. I like it. And that one thing led to another. Now that was was that is that the summer after you went to Richmond, right? I went to University of Richmond. You played there. Yep, played at Richmond, and I graduated with journalism degree. And I was looking for jobs in TV, newspapers, really newspapers. I wanted to write, and I didn't have a job. And it was like May of that year, and there was an ad saying they were starting a summer league at Narberth. And in my summers as a childhood, were spent at the Narberth playground watching the boys' league because my parents would take us there. And I was like, this is cool. I'll do that. So went to Narberth and um, started coaching and really liked it. And I met Bill McDonough, who um, ran a camp in the Poconos. And I worked that camp that August. And I met Jimmy Stinger, who had been the coach at Widener. Anyway, offered me a job as an assistant coach at Widener that summer. Took that job. And then about a month later, two weeks later, actually, I got a real job. And so I was part-time college coach and full-time journalist. So... um, that's what I did for a long time. Now, you don't see many people that are balancing journalism right. and coaching basketball. Right, right. So what were what were your days like and stuff like that? Were you just plugging in the basketball when you were, weren't reporting? How did it work? Yeah, so I, I was uh, – I, my first job was at a weekly newspaper. And so, you know, I had a, a bunch of stories I had to do every week. And so I kind of had flexible hours. And so I would leave – late in the you know evening practices were usually at five or six. I was only at Widener for a year. Um, it was pretty hard though, because with the travel, right? So I left Widener after that first year and I took a high school job at the Academy of Notre Dame. 
And, uh, but I had flexibility. I mean, I got, I would go to my news job. I'd go to practice. I'd go back to my news job and I worked a lot of hours, but I wanted to squeeze in that two hours of basketball. So it worked out. So you get your first taste of coaching high school basketball at the, the Academy of Notre Dame in Villanova. Do you immediately think I'm going to do this for a while or are you just kind of going year to year? No, I mean, I, I wasn't, I was focusing on my career in newspapers, right? And this was my hobby and, uh, but it was the best part of my day. And, you know, and I didn't really realize that until much later when I actually stopped coaching for a year. Um, I just, I just loved it so much. I mean, I was at the time I was writing news and feature stories. So like it was a totally different life. And, but then like five o'clock came and I would be running to get to practice and I just loved it. Um, but I actually stopped. I got married, and I retired for co- from coaching for a year. And I actually took a job at a daily newspaper at that point. And that was when I realized, like, I really missed it. I didn't coach. I wanted to be around it. And so kind of made a decision that I'm going to continue to coach. But I still worked. Um, I went back into high school coaching. Um, didn't really make the transition to full-time college till I was home with three kids and took, like, two years off completely from work. And I had to make a decision. Do I go back into newspapers? Do I go back into coaching? And that's when I, I went to Cabrini. So to go into full-time college coaching. So, and I still miss journalism. So I'm kind of, <laughs> I've been happy in both. But you did, you did writing about 15 years, right? I did. Yeah. I did. I, I, and I, you did sports at, at a certain I did point, sports. right? I ended up doing sports. I was a sports writer and sports editor at the end. Um, which was at really, the Mainline Times? I was at the Mainline Times, the Daily Times. Um, at one point, I, I was a stringer for the Neighbors section in the Enquirer. Okay. And it was cool because I would always try to use a different name. Like, I would use my official name so people wouldn't necessarily put the two together, but I'm, I'm sure they did. Because so, there was times when I actually was the sports editor uh, at the Mainline Times in my high school that I coached had to be covered. So that got a little tricky. But my yeah. boss was great. They let me do it. Yeah, that was what I was going to ask you was – in addition to situations like that, did being a coach give you an insight into covering games <laughs> from a tactical and X and O standpoint, but also from a what questions to ask, what questions not to ask, stuff like that, that somebody that really never played or coached at a, a level like that would have? Yeah, yeah, I definitely think it did. I think it gave me a, like a complete 360 understanding. Like I knew what it felt like to be a coach, to be a player. I know what the coaches and players felt like. Um, so I made me really sensitive. Um, there was a guy I worked with, uh, Don Fico. I don't know if you know him. He was at the Catholic standard in times used to coach golf at Villanova. Don was kind of my mentor in, in sports writing. And he was always like, don't ever write anything that you wouldn't want someone to put on the refrigerator. And uh, so I kind of always remembered that when I was writing. And as a coach, I kind of got how, you know, you never want to write anything negative about these are high school kids. It's one thing about the Eagles or the Phillies. They're making a million dollars, you know. But the high school kids, you want to make sure that it's not something bad. So kind of followed that. So when do you realize, with regards to the coaching, I'm pretty good at this. (laughs) and I still don't know about that. uh, (laughs) You know, you won – more than 300 games as a high school coach. And, you know, you're not talking 50-game seasons there. So was there a moment or a a season when you really started to think, like, wow, this just – it's fun and it makes so much sense to me and I'm good at this? Yeah, I I don't know, but the good at it, I think what I realized was how much the year I took off was how much I missed it, right? Right. I still, and I don't know that, I think a lot of coaches will tell you the same thing. I mean, 
I think you go into every season with this, okay, we're starting right over again, and you're starting from scratch, and anything you did in the past, whether it was good or bad, you know, I think, to me, that's what I actually love about it. And, I mean, are, am I good at it? I mean, I feel like the better players I've had, the you know, the, then I'm really good at it, you know. And so um, I, I don't know if there was a moment. I just knew that when I was without coaching that I really missed it. So, um, and now, you know, you get better with every year. But I, I think the value of being in Philly, and I still do it, I go to practices all the time. I mean, I've gone to Denise's practice. Every year I start the season by going to watch uh, Penn, Villanova, uh, Drexel, go, go watch practice. And even high school coaches that are friends of mine, like, you know, when I was young, I would go watch Jim Foster, Harry Peretta, and you call any of those guys or any of the people in the city, and they're like, sure, come up. So I think there's, a, there's an underlying insecurity in every college coach. I don't care if it's Jay Wright or that, you know, because it's always judged by your next season. So we all are trying to get better. So, so after your career as high school, you get to decide to go college. You go to Cabrini right. and Radnor. What was that transition like? Because you, pl- you had – high schools that were playing at high levels, having a lot of success. So when you take over at the college level, at the D3 level, was it like a jolt or were you like, you know, this kind of makes sense? Well, so that was a really hard decision for me because I was coaching in Haverford High School. It's where I went and I lived in that community. I still do. My kids all went to school there and I loved it there. I mean, we were really good, had it going. I knew every kid in the township, but that was during the period when I wasn't working full time, and I had three kids that were all very close in age. You know, at that time they were little, and I used to lay awake at night thinking about how we were going to get them through college. Right, so that that decision was driven not just by coaching, but by career. You know, and I was either do I go back into journalism, or do I take a shot at full time coaching? And I didn't want to go to Division One. I. I never did. Um, I wanted that balance. Right, so. When I got to Cabrini, I wasn't concerned about the coaching. I was concerned about the recruiting because I had never done it. Right. You know, um, but the coaching part I was not concerned about. I mean, I had gone against like some of the best coaches, I think, in the, in the country, in the PIAA back in the day, like Bob Schnoor at Downingtown and, and you know, Linus McGinney and, and those guys in the Catholic League. So I wasn't concerned about the coaching, but recruiting was the, the, the piece I needed to learn. So how early on, how was the recruiting? I mean, because that's, I think, People can tell you about it. that's kind of something you just have to do, I would imagine, and, and kind of find your pace, right? Yeah, but just the same way I did with coaching. Like, I called every single person I knew in Division Three, and I knew tons of them, and, and picked their brains and met with them. And um, I actually overdid it my first class. I mean, um, we ended up with 14 freshmen. Wow. Um, <laughs> but but that wasn't – that was court, sort of out of necessity because the team really was not in – there weren't a lot of kids in the program. So um, – and, you know, with Division Three, you have only the school to offer. You have the school, the academic programs, and there's no money. There's no scholarships. Um, so, yeah, I did have to learn because certainly I didn't want to have 14 kids in my first recruiting class. That wasn't ideal. <laughs> um, but you, you learn. You kind of learn just like anything else with time, you know, how to, how to sell that institution and how to kind of find the kids that want to – or good fit for the place where you are. And Cabrini's a really cool place. How difficult is it uh, to find where the players are? To find the players that can meet the level you need athletically and the level you meet academically, because that's you know even more now with you at, at Haverford. Yeah. But how long does that take to to find the, the pools to fish in? Yeah, I mean for Cabrini it was pretty simple. I mean I looked at the demographics of the school 
And then I literally got a list of every high school in like the five-state area, every AAU team, and then we just, you know, went out and saw them. So it was a really targeted area. Um, at, at Haverford, it's much more challenging because it's a national school and our academic standards are like way through the roof. Um, so that makes it a little and a little bit more complicated finding those kids. But, um, you know, I think, you know, you just adapt, right? Wherever you go, you just figure it out and, and you learn. Um, and it's not easy. It's very hit or miss. Um, again, because you can't offer, it's not a one for one, like here's a scholarship, come to Haverford, you know, it's, uh, here's what we have to offer. We think you'd be great, you know, and now they have to figure out the financial aid piece too, which is another huge hurdle at many of our schools. So, um, but you know, at the end of the day, I always think the end up getting the kids that you're supposed to get. I mean, that's kind of my philosophy that the kids that end up coming to a division three school should be going there, not just for their sport. They should be going there because they have their major and it's a good fit for them. So, it's kind of like the last frontier of how it should be, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of why you go to college. So to get a good degree and, and to be happy, at it, you know, for four years. So And specifically with you, for people that aren't familiar, the things your teams always do is defend. Yeah. The, your defensive numbers are absurd. I think yeah. it was like you average, you allowed like 48 points a game either right. last year or the right. year before. How hard is it to find kids in this day and age that will buy in to a defense-first philosophy? Well, you know, I, I, that's interesting because I don't know that that's what I necessarily sell. Okay. I mean, it's just kind of a byproduct of how we play. But, I mean, to be honest, like, I've always been very defensive-oriented even when I was in high school. But when I got to Haverford, we were really bad and we couldn't score. And, and, and so and, – and, and, and that's not a – you know, we just couldn't score. So we had to be good at defense, right, because that was our only chance. So it really became our focus. Um, but I think that I think that it's once you get the kids there, um, we do sell it, we promote it. Not so much as trying to get them to come, because it's something that everybody can do. And uh, and I think that if you have a bad day, you know, everybody you talk about coach speak. Everybody has a bad day shooting or an offense, but you know, there's no reason to not be great at defense. If and anybody can do it, it's just a matter of digging in. So I think the kids like it. I think once they get into it, they kind of like it. Um, and you know, you're always in the game. And and we've been able to pull off some of our upsets, and even this year when we hung with Tufts, because you know it was twenty one twenty one at halftime, paint dry. You know, <laughs> it was it was rough to watch. My husband said, but we didn't care. <laughs> what uh, led to the decision to to take the job at Haverford? You had a lot of success at Cabrini. What you know what what was it that that sold you on on making this the the next chapter? Yeah, I mean, so I I was very happy at Cabrini. I wasn't looking to leave. We had just won the conference and the gone to the NCAA. Um, but I literally grew up within shouting distance of Haverford, right? And as a kid, uh, we used to play there. I used to go over there and ice skate on the pond. I mean, I I sneak over there. I wasn't allowed to cross Haverford Avenue on my bike. But um, so when it opened up, I was just curious. And um, I, the campus is beautiful, right? And I, they had not been successful um, in women's basketball really since the origin of the since starting. And I was curious why that they couldn't be. Um, they had been successful like cross country. They've won national championships, Tom Donnelly. So I just did – I just went – I said, I'm going to go and apply for the job and see. You know, not really – I didn't have a resume. I had to put one together. And uh, once I made the interview and I kind of got a feel for the place and – it's a really cool place, and they have the values of the the play, of the, the Quaker values are kind of really aligned with mine, even though I'd grown up, you know, at a, as a Catholic. So I thought it was really neat. So you talk about they hadn't had a lot of success. You have had success there. I think two centennial titles and three NCAA yeah, tournaments. Yeah, yeah. So the first 
you win the title, the NCAA tournament first time in 2013, 2014. Yep. Yep. What's that like? I mean, it's to have success at a high level, but to kind of be blazing the trail and to have yeah. that group of kids be the first one to, to do something like that and go on a ride like that at that school. Yeah. Well, you know, everything we did at Haverford was a first, right? And, and, and so honestly, one of the best years I had there was my first year, which sounds weird, but um, they were the best group of kids and they were so happy that we were like really competing. Yeah, we didn't win a lot, but we like, we weren't getting beat by as much. So, so then, you know, as I brought in my first recruiting class, everything that they did kind of built towards trying to be successful. So when we finally won, I mean, to me, what I remember most was the kids that had graduated before that had been a part of the program. Like they all jumped in the team photo, um, which I thought was just so cool because they had all been a part of that like journey of trying to get better. I mean, I was just trying to get to the number 13 at one point because we won six games the first year, I think six or seven the second. Than 10. So it wasn't like it was uphill, you know, but when we finally won, all the, the women that had been a part of it were like, they were there. So that to me was the most rewarding part, seeing how happy they were. Was there a moment when you kind of felt like the program had turned a corner that you had kind of reached a level that you talk about it being uphill, but where all of a sudden maybe the ground's a little more level and it's not quite such a push that uh, you maybe got the the kids that can do what you want to do, stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, I was really lucky in my first recruiting class. I, I, I got a player, uh, Dominique Meeks from Richmond, Virginia, who legitimately could have played higher. Um, she wasn't, uh, she was just a tad short for, a, you know, Division One, um, but she's a thousand-point scorer and, and one of the best players that Haverford ever had. And when Dom came, um, I, you know, she was the reason, like, you know, and then Nina Voith, who was a Philly girl, um, the two of them were in my first recruiting class along with some really other talented kids. Um, so Nina ended up being our, our first All-American. She's from Germantown Friends. And her dad actually is Haverford's only male All-American. So the two of them are kind of like – so those two are in my first class. And I think once we got them, we got really competitive. It wasn't really until their junior and senior year, though, that we could really – but then I knew, like, okay, we're here. We're there. We can compete with anybody. So that was cool. So as you're building a program – how do you deal with expectations? Because you, you know, specifically at Haverford, like you said, they had struggled. And you get to a point now, you know, you've won two titles, you've gone to the NCAA tournament three times. Yeah. Has it changed the way you approach things? As you know, I guess you're not pushing uphill anymore. No. It never gets easy, but yeah. but it's a different game now. Yeah, and you know what? I think my my the challenge now is to remind the kids that are the women that are in the program now, like you know, you, you're standing on people's shoulders, right? And so. Um, it wasn't always like this and it's, you know, it's harder to stay at the top than it sometimes is to get there. Right. And uh, so, yeah, my ex, you know, so now you you hit a goal and now you want the next goal. And so I think this past year when we played Tufts, who was perennial final four team and we almost beat them on their floor, I think their eyes, I think they realize now that they're not that far from that next step. Um, that's what, you know, coaches talk about next steps. I mean, that's what coaches do. (laughs) So I'm like next step. So our next step, you know, ideally would be to continue to compete at the top of the conference, but then go even further. So what is your favorite part of the coaching experience? Everybody loves to win, but when you kind of look at the the whole thing that this job envelops, what, what's your favorite part? So it's funny. It's a good, good time to ask that question. So last night I went down to the Narvith playground and um, where I literally 
started coaching my first and I coached there for 25 summers. I left 10 years ago because um, my kids were too busy and I went down to Narbeth and I saw all the people that were involved in that league and there were, it was the playoffs and, um, and so that's what we talked about. We talked that, about this very thing that like over the years, the number of people that have come into my life, you know, and the relationships that I have, like there's nothing like it. You know, I, I'm not really good at uh, remembering details of games once they're over, unless they're like the ones that really stick with you. Right. Like, you know, like I can't get over a few of them ever, but, um, but I'm really good at remembering the people. And so I think that's what's been the, the coolest part. The coolest part for any coach would tell you that. If they're in it for the right reason, I'm judging now. <laughs> but if they're in it for the right reason, it's about the people, you know, and the people they get to meet. That's, that, would, that, would, that is what it is about for me. How have you changed as a coach over the years? If I mean, yeah. really at all. Oh, no, no, totally. Marshmallow compared to where, I mean, like soft in the middle. I think, um, I think my, my players when I was coaching high school used to talk about like, Bobby before babies and Bobby after babies. Um, and I don't know if it's that dramatic. I think that might have just been my fiery youth. But I think now I'm, uh, I'm, just a, I'm just a much more mature person. I mean, you know, you do something for this long. You're smarter. Smarter but dumber, right? So, like, in some ways you, I feel that I don't know everything I need to know. So I'm, I feel like I recognize that now. And I think that's what happens when you get older. Um, I think the biggest thing, though, um, and this is my saying, it's that um, – once I had kids and you realize everybody's somebody's baby, right? And I always say that to the younger coaches on our staff at Haverford, like everybody's somebody's baby. So, you know, you have these challenges with kids, but, and then you challenge with parents sometimes, but you kind of try to remember that, right? <laughs> Especially in the tough times. <laughs> now, in addition to coaching, you were also on the Division Three Women's Basketball yeah. National Committee, and you were chair for yeah. a few years. For people that aren't familiar, what is this part of it entail what is this all about right so so um so the ncaa even at the division one level and division three absolutely um you know it's driven by the membership so we all serve on committees and <clears throat> what the women's basketball committee does is essentially put on the national tournament um and we also sort of steer the sport for during the four years but um so as the chair it's just like you see it during march madness right so we we oversee the selection for the 64 teams that make it um and, you know, the uh, at-large bids, and we have incredible, large, like, long meetings that drag on for hours. Um, but at the end of the day, we, we pick the teams, and then we actually run the tournament, um, which was really tricky when my team was actually in it, so I couldn't be on some of the calls. But it's a huge time commitment. It's a four-year sentence, as we like to say. <laughs> did you enjoy it? Was Did you take a lot out of it as far as learning and appreciation and stuff like that? Yeah, so it was cool because, I mean, you you know, you inside out, right? You got to see how the NCAA works and, and the criteria and learn a little bit more in depth. Um, but again, I, you know, the coolest part was that I met people from all the eight regions all over the country, California, people that I never would have had a chance to meet. And, uh, and it's kind of like one of those, like, uh, band of brothers or band of sisters thing because you work so hard. Um, you really become very good friends because you're in the trenches and you're dealing with complaints and you're dealing with challenges. And over four years, you really develop some cool relationships. So it was a really great experience. I learned I could run any tournament now if I ever had to. Um, so I might, I might even go back to it at some point, but not now. I need a break. Yeah, it was a lot. So as a, you know, we hear so much about the, the at-large and the bubble teams right, and right. stuff like that. How difficult is that when you're the one 
Else. You know, moving the pieces around and deciding who gets to follow their dream and whose yeah. season's over. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's quite like the, the Division One model where there's just, you know, it's a much different, um, you know, our, our, the NCAA gives us some pretty specific criteria, win-loss percentage, strength of schedule. We don't have RPI to use and stuff like that. Um, so it's a little bit more cut and dry in Division Three, but there's still cho- there's still teams at the end, you know, where you could make this decision and it would make sense or you could make that decision. So, yeah, it's a little gut-wrenching, um, particularly you know the people, so you try to be as objective as you can. Uh, and at the end of the day, someone's always going to be mad. And that's just one of those things you live with. But I think the coolest thing was the integrity of the process of the people that I work with and how hard they worked. Like, it was really refreshing to see how committed they were to making making it right and getting it right. And we'd argue and we'd fight and, you know, get mad at each other sometimes. But at the end of the day, that was cool. It made me made me feel good about the process. Are you surprised how far the women's game has come overall as far as media coverage, as far as fan recognition, stuff like that? I mean, still work to do, yeah. but I feel like specifically the last 10 years or so, it's really made a pretty quantum leap forward. I think it has in, in a very small, in small places, but not in, not maybe not enough across the board, um, obviously like the Yukons and Notre Dame. Um, but I think it's awesome. Um, and I think, you know, every, every time these women's sports are get like the women's soccer team, what they just did, it's, it's great because these, the, the girls growing up now, this is what they expect. You know, they don't, they don't know the past and how hard it was to get to this point. Um, so I think it's awesome, but I also think it's a much better product. If I'm going to sound like a marketing person, which I don't like their people, um, but the women are so much better. Like the, you know, the, the women that, that like in my day, the people that were playing in division one wouldn't be able to play division one now, you know, it's just a totally different, the athletes are so much better and stronger and bigger. Um, so I think it's great. I mean, and, and I think there's so much more to be done though, in terms of salary. Um, you know, I've heard, you know, we've all heard Muffet speak and I think her team has been to the final four in division one and they don't get any money for that. Like the women, the you know, men's program, each time they win a game, they get thousands and thousands of dollars. You go to the national championship as a Division One school in women's basketball, you get butkus, I think. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure. I don't think that's changed. And that's, that's not right. So still work to be done. Yeah. Are you, I don't know if confident, or do you, are you encouraged that that work will be done? I am. Um, you know, it's funny, a lot of people have been talking about the women's soccer and how this is going to change everything for women, and I'm not being cynical. I'm being realistic. I feel like that's been my lifelong fight. That to, to um, You know, I grew up in an age where the women didn't get to practice at the same time as the men. We waited till they were done. And I've grown up in an age where at times I've had to fight for equal pay. So, you know, even today. So it's still going on. Um so I don't think that this is going to be like a magic switch and that the women's soccer team wins, they're front and stage for you know a, two, a flash two minutes, and that the world will change. I think that the fight has to continue. And I would even use the word fight. I think it's just like the cause, right? You still have to keep pushing. And it's not just women. It's just doing the right thing for everybody. Um, so I think we have still have a long way. There's a big gap still and a long way to go. So 33 years as a coach, are you able to watch basketball and unplug and just enjoy it? Or are you constantly watching and go, oh, why did they run that set? Oh, why didn't yeah. they go? Are you, or you, are you always coaching even when you're just watching yeah. a game? You know, it's a curse because there was a time in my life when I could watch basketball and just be like a fan. And now 
I mean, even I can, I, my husband and I, if one of my kids would be playing a CYO game and I'd be jotting down an inbounds play that I like. So no, those days are long gone. Um, I don't, I can't watch it without seeing the, the pieces moving, you know, it just looks different to me now. It's just a different way. I can't switch my brain back to just, you know, watching. I watch the Sixers and I'm jotting stuff down and yeah, but that's not a bad thing. It's just, it looks different than it did when I was just a fan. So. And final question, how much do you enjoy kind of being a part of the fabric of Philadelphia basketball, being a part of this community? Because it's really unlike any yeah. community I think I've ever seen. I don't think even think like other sports in the city. There's the the Philadelphia college basketball scene is special. Yeah, it, it really is. And, you know, you don't realize it until you go outside of here. Um, but I feel like, I mean, the people that I call, the mentors that I have, they're all different levels, men's coaches, women's coaches on both sides. Um, you know, I think it's, that's why I ended up doing what I'm doing, right? So I was tagging along with my brother at St. Joe's, and now I'm coaching in college. And, um, you know, I don't think there's any place quite like Philly in terms of the grassroots. And I, think it, and, and I think particularly on the women's side, and I think probably like Immaculata and all the opportunities women had. Um, I mean, my mom played basketball in the, in, the, in the 40s at Rosemont College. So you just don't have that in other parts of the country. So, yeah, it's awesome to be a part of it. It's, it's, a, it's a cool thing. Bobby Morgan, head women's basketball coach at Haverford. Thanks for stopping by. And that will do it for another episode. One on One is an original sports podcast from KYW News Radio. If you like this show and want to help us out, make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. You can help more people find out about the podcast by finding the show on Apple Podcasts and leaving a rating and a review. You can follow the show on Twitter at One on One Pod. You can also follow me on Twitter at Matt Leon Ten Sixty. Thanks again to Haverford College women's basketball coach Bobby Morgan for stopping by this week. My name is Matt Leon. Come back next week for another good conversation with someone you should know more about.